Jeremiah 31. I'll be reading from verses 31 to 34. Um, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Now, I've encouraged you to do this before, but um, every once in a while you ought to just take a walk down this hallway back here and look at that timeline. That really helps you understand, and I should have said this before when we were going through Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Psalms, um, and Song of Solomon, to see the overall picture of history really, really helps to know when this person wrote what was going on in the whole world around them. Um, and with Jeremiah, you'll see uh, on the chart in that hallway, you'll see a split. The kingdom uh, Israel split. Two of them went um, with Rehoboam and two of them went with Jeroboam. And um, so, so when you read your Bible, sometimes you read about the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, and you never know at times, is he talking about Israel as all the people of God, or was it a separated kingdom at that point? At this point, they're separated, and they've had civil war off and on. Uh, the northern kingdom, Judah, uh, particularly had many more good kings than evil, um, but they started to decline. And the northern kingdom watched as the southern, I'm sorry, the southern kingdom I must have got that wrong. I'm sorry. The southern kingdom had greater kings and queens and uh, more godly leadership. The northern kingdom um, got carried away and was predominantly evil kings. So um, Isaiah that we talked about last week was about 40, 50 years ahead of Jeremiah. So Isaiah prophesied all of these things were going to happen to these people. If you remember last week, I said just a brief lesson on prophecy that a prophet would give you uh, predictions. And when those predictions happened, you were in your mind to think, hey, I can trust what this person said. I can trust what this person said. So it's kind of like watching Grove football with Bo Byers sitting behind you. Uh, It's a great lesson. Uh, Bo Byers like, don't do this, don't do this. If you do this, they're going to run up the middle. And and, uh, I don't know what he's saying. Nobody knows what he's saying. But sure enough, they do that, and the guy runs up the middle and gets a first down. He's like, doggone it, that's what I said. Don't do that, coach. Don't. You know, and so you start to listen, and I'm like, hey, this old guy knows what he's talking about. I think he knows, what, I think he knows a little about what's going on. The prophet was the same. Here's what's going to happen. But a lot of them were short-term, and when those short-term prophet, prophecies came true, the people would then look and say, what are the long-term And it was the same for Jeremiah. What was harder for Jeremiah, I think, is Jeremiah had a people that saw the judgment of God. They saw it. And then he himself saw it. And it was generations. You see, we have to think that way. Sometimes we don't. We just think about our own life and the next few years for us and what's God going to do and what's he up to. And, and if we take that small view at times, we can get really discouraged. We can feel like, oh, Christianity is, is waning. Uh, it's not, you know, we're, we're, we're losing. Uh, none of this stuff's coming true. Look at how wicked people are. Um, they're, they're, they're triumphing. Evil is winning. Um, but to take a long view and look at 100 years, 200 years, several generations, um, Jeremiah had that. Um, and so Jeremiah prophesied between the years of 627 and 580 B.C. So 
about 40 or 50 years after Isaiah. This is what um, the book, Talk Through the Bible. So if you're looking for a book to add to your library that would help you as you read your Bible, Talk Through the Bible is a great book for that. It gives you just a brief outline, shows you where the books line up, gives you themes and how to understand it. Here's what they say about Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the autobiography of one of Judah's greatest prophets during the nation's darkest days. Apostasy, which is abandoning or renouncing one's religious beliefs. Idolatry, perverted worship, moral decay. These were the conditions under which Jeremiah lived and ministered. An avalanche of judgment is coming, and Jeremiah is called to proclaim that message faithfully for 40 years. In response to his sermons, the tender prophet of God experiences intense sorrows at the hands of his countrymen. Opposition, beatings, isolation, imprisonment. But though rejected and persecuted, Jeremiah lives to see many of his prophecies come true. The Babylonian army arrives, vengeance falls, and God's holiness and justice are vindicated, though it does break the prophet's heart. The book that we look at next week, Lamentations, is the prophet's broken heart as he sees the judgment of the Lord coming upon the people. Now, one more thing before I read Jeremiah 31. Um, in the Kuiper family, we, me as, the, as, the, as the, the head, the man of the family, I follow a long line of men when it comes to doing road trips. You know that as a dad that you go to a class to learn how to do a road trip with your family. There are specific things that you're supposed to do, right? Uh, my dad had special clothing he wore. He had these white shorts that he wore all the way up to his armpit and a flowery vacation shirt. He pulled his socks almost up to his knees, and we knew Dad is on vacation. We're getting ready to go on vacation, and uh, we are on the clock. We're on the clock. Now, I brought that into my family. I don't know if you've traveled with a dad like that. I don't know if you're a dad, and that's how you travel, but we were on the clock, and I would tell the kids that, and Mom would say it. Okay, kids, Dad says we're on the clock, and then I would yell one word out. Car! Car! If I said we were leaving at 6, Tammy knew that at about 5.45, I'd start pacing the house. Pacing back and forth. And then and she'd say, but you said we were leaving at 6. I'm like, I, I, I know, but I need to start my process to get everybody scared. Several years ago, I changed it. And, and it's just, it's ruined everything. I'm a nicer, kinder travel companion. We stopped sometimes and look at stuff. We pulled over and looked at a waterfall. I still had five hours left of driving, and we're looking at a waterfall. I'm like, you can look at it online. What's this doing to our average speed? But I thought, I, I just don't want my kids and grandkids to be afraid to go on a trip with me. Now, I think that what we see in Jeremiah, when he says, new covenant, we can mistake for that. In, in some sense, you can read Jeremiah, and you can go to the New Testament, and you can mistake it for, in some sense, God saying, boy, that Old Testament harsh God that had righteousness drawn and, and, and his law written in stone, front and back, unchangeable, that just didn't work. And, and so it's like, Jesus, the younger, kinder, hipster God, comes in and says, hey, Dad, let me have a chance. 
let me convince these people that you're really a pretty good guy. And so um, what's wonderful is, we'll talk about this, the continuity and discontinuity of the covenant. But Jeremiah, in a sense, in my sermon title was, All I Want for Christmas is a New Covenant. When you think about Jeremiah, uh, you know, his predecessor, Isaiah, uh, preached the truth, cried out for people to repent, and the reward for his work, King Manasseh had him, we think, King Manasseh had him sawn in half with a wooden saw. Jeremiah sees this, sees that Isaiah was right, begs the people, and he gets thrown in the cistern. He gets the, the word of God that is given to him. He, the king reads it, tears it off, throws it in the fire. Um, he gets left, abandoned, beaten. Um, false prophets come and attack him. Uh, all, all of this happens. And so when I say all I want for Christmas is a new covenant, I want you to see this this morning through the eyes of Jeremiah. He has faithfully presented the truth of God's word over and over and over again. And I've told you before, for me as a pastor, thinking that, that it, it's possible for me to do everything right and have our church not grow, it's possible for me to teach and say everything right and have people not like me. I know it may not sound that crazy to you, but for me it does because the gospel's good news. And so I always think, man, as soon as I tell them about the gospel, they're going to they're gonna just shout for joy. And yet the gospel says, you're not okay on your own. You have to turn. So when I say all what Jeremiah wants is a new covenant, this promise that comes in chapter 31, you have to know that it comes in the midst of him crying out for years and years and years. Please turn from your sins. Please turn away from your idols. Um, so Jeremiah 31. Let's, let's pick up 31, 31 to 34. You can stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. We need a new covenant, or an unfolding covenant, or a renewed covenant. We realize it's not just enough to teach the Ten Commandments. It's not enough for us to church as just to put the Ten Commandments out there on the street. It's not enough for us to church just to make sure and get a Bible in everybody's hand. Uh, we need to understand God's covenantal nature. We need to understand the way the law fits in and the promise fits in. And we need to understand that there is something wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with God's law. There's something wrong with us. And deep down, human beings know it. What gives me great pain as a pastor is when people realize something is wrong with them and they seek the answer elsewhere. And they seek the answer elsewhere and it tends to hurt them more and more and become more addicting, more painful, more costly, more estranging of those around you. Let me give you just a brief, brief picture of the covenant, and you'll find it all through the scriptures. 
Uh, you'll also find, uh, as Scotty said in Sunday school, this beautiful promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. You probably summarize the whole of Scripture with that saying, I will be your God. Not I hope to be, not please make me your God, not I'm hoping you'll choose to be my people. No, God is saying, here's what I'm doing. I'm creating all of this existence, and in the midst of all of this existence, there's going to be a people that are mine. I want them to be mine, and I will make them mine. And in the midst of what Jeremiah is facing, let me just show you a little bit what, what he was facing. Um, in Genesis 2, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that is the introduction of a covenant. God says, I am doing all of this. I am making an agreement with you, mankind. I have provided everything you need. Here is what you are to do. Here is how you are to act. And here is what you are not to do. I have made a covenant. I have made an agreement with you. That covenant gets broken. And immediately in Genesis 3, God of his own volition, God of his own choosing, not Adam and Eve crying out, have mercy on us, have mercy on us, please, we're sorry, we didn't know, we didn't understand. There is none of that. God seeks them out and says, where are you? Who told you you were naked? You were listening to a lie and you had broken covenant with me. And God had every right to wipe them off the planet and to start afresh and anew. He had given them everything necessary. There was no excuse and they had turned their back on him and said, we, we are going to trust our own minds more than what you've told us, O God. And so Genesis 3, God promises a redeemer. Now, through the scriptures, this redeemer, it, it, it grows. It, it, it's, it's like a seed. This covenant grows and grows, and it gets more and more filled out. And we see more and more of it as it unfolds. And so Eve, the, the thought are, is that, that Eve thought that her son was the covenant redeemer. And so when she says, you know, by the grace of God, I've given birth to the man, many people think that she thought this is the one that's going to undo all that happened. And boy, was she disappointed. Um, we get to Genesis 8, Noah. Uh, there's a, what we call the Noahic covenant. Uh, it's similar wording to Genesis, but now it's, it, God shares it and makes it a little more broader to Noah and his descendants. It's interesting, some of the same wording. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, the Abrahamic covenant gets even fuller and richer and deeper. It's an amazing thing, uh, the Abrahamic covenant. God just says, I am choosing you from, from a people, and I'm calling you to myself, and I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. I am going to do all of this. This is who I am. I'm showing forth how wonderful and glorious and powerful and gracious I am to you, Abraham. And it's wonderful. You read the story. Abraham, is, is, he's, he's lame in so many ways, isn't he? We would not want him to be a member of Three Rivers Church. Right? The guy who lets people have his wife because he's afraid of them. Right? I mean, it's all sorts of things. But uh, Abrahamic Covenant, chapter 12, chapter 15, it gets reiterated. Again, God says, Abraham, I am going to do this. Because Abraham is doubting. You have that illustration with a smoking fire pot, animals cut in half. God himself saying, I am committing myself to doing this. Genesis 17, I'm giving you the sign of my covenant, the circumcision. It's going to be passed on from you to your offspring, to your generation. Genesis 22, Abraham tells his son Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. 
Genesis 26, the covenant is renewed again with Isaac. Genesis 26, 27, Jacob receives these covenant blessings. He is told, this is for you and your children. In Genesis 27, uh, Joseph receives covenant blessings. Then there's the Exodus. They get taken away. In chapter 20, God gives him the covenant written in stone. Um, Exodus 3, he calls Moses. Moses says, uh, who are you? If I tell them, they're going to ask me what his name is. And God says, I am who I am. Here's what he says. I am he. Say this to the people of Israel. God also said, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered through all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel. Say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the son, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me saying... I have seen what you've done. And then he goes on to say, and I'm promising, I am fulfilling my promise. I'm not going to go through every book of the Bible talking about the covenant, but it is a, a, a cord that goes all the way through Scripture. God makes promises and he keeps them. He, he, he has the audacity to say that. I have never broken one. Joshua looks at the people and he says, oh, people, as I'm about to die, there's not one promise that God has not fulfilled. Trust Him more than yourself, more than your feelings. Trust His Word more than anything else. There is not a single one, generation after generation after generation. That's why I say it's good to just look at that timeline on occasion and realize here's where we are and here's how our God has proved Himself faithful. In 2 Kings 22, um, uh, and, and again, to see kind of this downward spiral of the bad kings and the people moving away from God, um, it, it takes hundreds of years, but it gets awful. There are kings of Israel who burn their children alive. Okay, that, that's what goes on in these people whose forefathers were rescued from slavery and given a land who had stories passed on from generation to generation, who had every bit of their culture reminding them that God Almighty is to be trusted. Um, it, it's just horrible as you read these things that these people commit. And yet in the midst of this, God is faithful saying, I'm, I'm going to rescue a people for myself. So Josiah, and again, that's a, Josiah's reign is a, uh, it is a fulfillment of a prophecy. And, and so even the fact and what Josiah did and his name was prophesied. And so um, when I say you look at the scriptures, if you, if you look at the scriptures historically, God proves himself over and over and over again. These people aren't told, uh, take a blind leap, take a blind leap of faith. Uh, if you feel it, believe it. If you feel it in your heart, it must be true. No, he's like, look back and see. And so when Josiah, who was prophesied, when he becomes king in 2 Kings 22, in verse 11 to 13, it says, the king heard the words of the book of the law. So they go in and they're cleaning up the temple. You know what's going on in the temple? Male prostitution. All sorts of profane, terrible things. So when, when, you, when you think about, like I, I think as an, as an evangelical, what that means, and I think about the, the church as I've watched it in, in my short years on earth, um, 
being tempted in some ways to, to make the message of Christianity palatable. That's exactly what has happened throughout history. People said you can, you can serve God Almighty, but you can also serve these. And, and, and God is remade, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but God is, is remade in whatever way they wanted him. So in their time, you, you could have a certain God that would help you have children. You have certain God that you made certain sacrifices to, and, and, and your, your, um, your fields would produce. Uh, you had certain gods, and that's why some of Israel's kings killed their children. You sacrifice your son on the wall of the city, uh, then these gods are going to help you. They're going to look at that blood, and they're going to help you, and you're going to take the city. So um, when you read through this, you have to realize that it's subtle, but the same thing is happening. Right? You're, you're, you're told to, to find a god. Think about this, and people look for a church. They look for a church. They don't necessarily, most evangelicals don't necessarily say, I, I want to find a church where the word of God is taught unapologetically. If it stands against culture, then it stands against culture. No, many people, I, I'm looking for a church that makes me really feel good. And that my kids enjoy going to, because you know, at least they're in church and they're having fun. Um, that, that's where we are for the majority of evangelicalism. Let's find a place that makes us feel good. Anyway, uh, when the king heard, so they find the book of the law, and they come and they bring it to this boy king. Um, when, they, when the king heard, he says he tore his clothes. He heard, oh no, this is what God has said would happen if we turned away from him. And the prophet reads it, tore his clothes, and he said to Hilkiah the priest, and he said, go, go, go inquire of the Lord, verse 13. And for the people and for Judah concerning the words of this book that's been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Now, okay, so that's Old Testament. You come to the New Testament and you have uh, the Apostle Paul who knew all of these stories, who studied for years and years. Um, and, and the Apostle Paul in Romans, which we're going to do, uh, just, just so you know, the next book I'm going to preach is going to be 1 Timothy. And then I'm out for the summer. And then we're going to do Romans. When you come to Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul has gone through all different types of religions, all different types of philosophies. And he's exposed their weaknesses in all of them. And then he gets personal and talks about himself. I was a self-righteous person, he says. I followed the law of God to a T. I was a Pharisee. I added all of these rules. I was the one you could trust. And yet, as he unfolds his own self-righteousness, he comes in chapter 7, and he just says this, Wretched man! This is Paul, the apostle. What does he say? I, I do the things I don't want to do. And all the things that I want to do, that, I, that I, in my mind I commit to do, I don't do. He comes to chapter 7, Wretched man, I'm who will deliver me from this body of death? And so we stand alongside of all of these people that have gone before us. We break the laws. We break God's covenant. We choose other gods, and we forget his benefits. So we need a new covenant, or we need a renewed covenant that will overcome the problems that we have with the old covenant. The sermon in the sentence this morning is, since we are unreliable in our commitments, we must wholeheartedly trust in God to keep his side of the new covenant. When I say new, um, and I don't know if any of you got my email and you read the, the article by Richard Pratt 
I'm not going to go all over it, but it, it's really good in, in talking about this idea of what, what the, the new covenant, uh, the Hebrew word really means renew. So think of it as a couple that's been married for 50 years and they go and renew their vows. Uh, they, they might want in some sense to say, uh, we want to remind ourselves, we want to celebrate what we've done, and they may add something to it. But for them, it's this renewal. We've made this commitment. Um, let's renew our vows. I've worked with couples that have had terrible issues and they've wanted to renew their vows. Uh, once the reconciliation has happened, can we renew our vows? And so think of it in that, in that sense, um, this new covenant. So what was wrong with the old covenant? What is wrong? What, what, what seems to be this ongoing issue is that we break it. We break it all the time. And I've, I've talked about this before. You know, if, if we make certain things illegal, that doesn't mean we're going to change someone's heart. Right? Murder is illegal. If we make almost murdering people illegal, which it is, is that going to stop people from murdering? No. We, we make ro- rules and we make laws, but they don't change our heart. And so what we see in all of Scripture, what I, why I believe it, is the king's David, Solomon, they all tell their stories, and every one of their stories is, I broke the law. I sinned against God. I went against the counsel of the priests. I went on my own. I strayed. It's not like all the other Near Eastern kings who have their writings, and, and all of their writings, if you read, if you, ever, if you ever compare the scriptures to other writings, you see those kings talk about themselves being gods. And it's as if they can walk on water, if they will never die. Um, they don't talk about, they don't allow it to be known, all of their failings and their inconsistencies. So uh, this covenant needs to be uh, changed or renewed because the covenant parties, if the covenant parties are us and God, we continue to break his covenant. And so Jesus, and, and we, we talk about Jesus being the second Adam, is the one who keeps that covenant of works. Um, and, and the covenant then, the way many of us like to see it and explain it is it starts at creation. And so you, you hear words in the scriptures like uh, in the benediction, the eternal covenant, the everlasting covenant, that God covenanted with himself. Uh, and that unfolds and we keep breaking it and keep breaking it and God keeps showing that he still is faithful. So in Genesis 17, when, when uh, the, the animals are all split apart, God is saying, I'm going to keep it. Um, so that's the problem. We break the covenant. Why do we break the covenant? Well, there's three problems, and I'm going to talk about it really quick. The first is the law problem. Uh, verse 32 and 33, they broke it, though I was their husband. The law was written on stone, but it wasn't written on their hearts. Ezekiel 36, we replaced the heart of stone with a flesh heart. Hebrews 8, it's the longest quoted section of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Do you know that? It's from this passage. The writer to Hebrews is saying, uh, we are celebrating this new covenant. Hey, hey, New Testament believers, uh, this is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 uh, in Hebrews 8. The law problem. What was the law to do? Quickly, the law did three things for us. The law convicted us of sin. We know what sin is because God gives us the law. Right uh, Now, again, many evangelicals don't even know the law. Many evangelicals probably would struggle to write the Ten Commandments down. Um, God gives us the law so we are aware of our sin. 
he, he, this, this, is, this is it. This is how you're to be. This is what is important. This is what righteousness, this is what goodness looks like. The second is it is a guide for our living. Uh, so it convicts us of our sin. It gives us a guide for living. And the third is it really shows us God's holiness. All right. So the law never was to save us. It was to point out the need of a Savior. That's why right after Moses gets the law, he gets the ceremonies. He gets the sacrificial system. When you break my law, this is how you'll be made right. So we have a problem with the law. It's written in stone and it needs to be written in our hearts. So the promise of the new covenant is that it will be written in our hearts. That's the promise of the Spirit. To write it in your hearts. That you would know what God requires. That you would be convicted of your sin. That you would look at the law of God as a way of living and that you would know more and more of Him. The second problem with the Old Covenant is the other God problem. Right? And we talked about that briefly as I went through the Old Testament. The other God problem. You know the other gods offered Israel? Uncommitted sexual gratification. The other gods offered children, business success, control. The other God problem. We find ourselves running after other gods over and over and over again. And when we run after the other gods, we break the covenant that God has made with us. We run into the problem then of recreating God in whatever image we want he or even she to be. I met with a pastor this week that I mentor. And he told me about a lady he was interviewing for membership. And it was interesting. I said, oh, yeah, we're receiving new members. He said, yeah, I was, I was interviewing a lady for membership. And he said, it used to be in my church. All you had to do if you wanted to become a member is you walk forward and you sign this letter saying, I'd like to transfer my membership and I'd like to be a member of this church. And so he said, I, I was going over kind of what, what a membership means. And, um, and the lady said, well, I, I don't want to believe this part about God. This part of the scripture here, I, 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 I'm not going to believe this. Uh, the God I believe in, that, that's not him. And he said, well, then um, you're not a member. <laughs> it's like, uh, you're absolutely welcome to come to church. And we're going to love on you and, 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 and we'll talk to you and consider. But you don't cut and choose Mr. Potato Head God, like I like to call him. You don't create him in the way that is easy for you to believe. You take him on his own terms as he is presented. But the other gods, they really did allow you to do that. Just pick and choose. It was really interesting. A few years back when I went to Nepal and I went to the temple of Kali, there were different sacrifices that you gave for different things. And there were different gods you worshipped for different things. That's the problem. You need to ask yourself, what gods do you serve? But maybe the biggest problem is the end. Look at the end of this text. This is kind of the most amazing thing. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. You know, we've said that our mission statement is to know the Lord and to make him known. I mean, that those two things get together, we, we, we seek to know him. Uh, as we said at the call to worship, to boast that we know him. And it's not an intellectual boasting. It is a boasting in the Lord. Here is all that I know about him. Um, know the Lord, for they shall know me. 
uh, from the least of them to the greatest. So what, what's this last problem? It's the memory problem. What are we to remember? We're to remember our God. When we read all these stories, why do we have all of this? Remember that our, our, our God is faithful when we are faithless. Why does he call Jeremiah? Jeremiah, these people are going to leave me. They're going to be punished. But Jeremiah, there is a day coming, as he says, when they will come to their senses. There is a day coming when all of this will make sense, when they will throw away their idols as worthless things. They will look at their gods of wood and stone, and they'll say, you can't save me, you can't hear me, you can't do anything. There is a day coming. We are to remember our God. What are we to forget? We are to forget. Forget all of our other gods. What does God remember? God remembers his covenant. What does God forget? Our sins. So let me just try to summarize this all up together. In Luke chapter 7, an angel appears to Mary, and the angel says this, she, Mary, will give birth to a son. We know if we've read Luke that this son is actually of the line of David, that that is part of the prophecy. He's of the line of David on Mary's side and on Joseph's side. Part of the prophecy that God would have a king that would reign eternally from the line of David. She'll give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, I tell you, uh, um, I'm sorry, that was Matthew 1, 21. Luke 7, the woman who washed Jesus' feet. I tell you, her, the woman who washed Jesus' feet, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. How does this all come about? Well, we have some of it already. Okay, so Jeremiah 31, the days are coming. I'll make a new covenant as this covenant unfolds. So there are some things that we celebrate now, right? But we don't celebrate all of this now, do we? The law of God is still needs to be, we still need to put it on our hearts, right? We still need to teach one another, right? We still have mission work to do. But we do have the last bit. He has forgiven our sins and he remembers them no more. So it's why it was important that Jesus took on human flesh. So Jesus takes on human flesh and he fulfills the covenant. Jesus takes on human flesh and he doesn't break any of God's law. All of it that was written in stone, he keeps all of it. It's vitally important that we grasp that because God's law was not the problem. Jesus fulfills the law. If you read Matthew, he fulfills all of it. He never sins against another human being. He also fulfills all of it ceremonially. So when you think about it, he says, Behold, John says, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. In Revelation, the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. 
before the foundation, before earth was made, when it was in the mind of God, in the mind of God is, I will make a people and I will rescue them by my son. And so this is the joy we get at Christmas. Jeremiah was looking forward to it. What is this going to look like? How on earth is anyone, anyone going to wash the sins of these terrible people? These people that every time I tell them about God, they get angry and they hurt me. They tell me to shut up and they throw me in a cistern. How will this be made right? How will God's absolute holiness and righteousness be upheld? A virgin will bear a child. And he'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. And he'll save his people from his sins. Our Savior kept the covenant of works. He kept it. When we come to this table and we eat the bread and we say this is, this is as if we're eating his body, we are saying that by eating this bread, I in faith am saying Jesus kept all the law of the old covenant. And by faith, I receive from him that righteousness. I receive from him that record. When we drink the cup, we say Jesus suffered a death not because he had failed. Jesus suffered the death to punish our sins. And so we drink that cup and we say it is sufficient. God has looked on Christ and he said he has suffered sufficiently for my people. But here's what for me all week just stood out. I'll remember them no more. As great as we can forgive people, and I try my best, I remember. Now, sometimes I'll tell a couple, you know, you, you choose to not bring it up. If you forgive your spouse, if you forgive your kid, you, you do your best to just not keep a record of it, keep bringing it up. We try, we seek to forgive as God forgave us. But can you believe that? That the creator of the world will look at you one day and his divine grace will blot out, in some sense, his omniscience. What did I have there, that quote? I don't know where I got it from. What grace forgives, divine omniscience forgets. I mean, that's the beauty of our gospel. That, that he, he will look upon us and because of what Christ has done, he will not remember our sins. Isn't that wonderful? That's really the joy of Advent. Christ came that we might have our sins forgiven and not remembered. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, I'm grateful just as a preacher and a pastor that you didn't make me live during the time of Jeremiah. But would you make us as faithful as this servant? Would you make us weep over our sins and the sins of our people? Would you, Father, give us a glimpse of the hope that he had? Oh, Father, we should have even greater. We have seen the Christ. He came and he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the moral law. He gave his life and fulfilled the sacrificial law. And the remainder of this covenantal promise, the day is coming when we will know you in the depths of our hearts, when your law will be written on us and we will love it. We will long for it. We'll relish the law written in our hearts. That day coming where the promise that you will be our God and we will be your people. And you will be with us and you will not abhor us. 
You will not be a reluctant God dwelling amongst his people, but a rejoicing Savior amongst those who have been washed and cleansed and are made right. Father, we thank you for this sacrament that we celebrate together. That Your son knew that we would need to be reminded of this time and time and time again, that his death was sufficient. His sacrifice was sufficient, that he has paid our debt. We pray, Lord, that we would know this. In Christ's name, amen.